Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 3. We have finished our study in the life of Abraham. Now we have a little bit of a transition before we start things anew after Aloha Night. For those of you that are graduating, this is your last regular lesson time with us. Um, Wednesday is Aloha Night, which I know that you're excited about. Today we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 3, and we will look at Peter preaching to the crowds at the temple. This is one of the major sermons in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is interesting uh, because the theme, as you know, is the birth and growth of the new church. Some look at the book of Acts as the model of the church, but we know that that's not the theme. But they look at it and they say, wow, look at those miracles and sign gifts and how everyone's selling their possessions and all of these things that are happening. Well, Acts is the transition from the resurrection of Christ to his ascension in Acts 1 to the coming of the Holy Spirit and the beginning of the church. And when it comes to a lesson or it comes to a sermon the formula is very clear in the Bible on what it should look like. 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul writes, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teaching. Paul writes Timothy, his young son in the faith, the pastor at Ephesus, that you need to read the text, explain the text, and apply the text. And so that's what we do in the youth group. And when you move over to the college group, that's what they're going to do in the college group. And Lord willing, if you move off somewhere, if you're wondering if it's a good church or not, are they reading the text, explaining the text, and applying the text? And Dan Ham, y'all might have to mute some of the things behind me because of the little buzz feedback, but it might just be me. So that's what we're going to do today as we look at Acts 3. We first of all have the setting in verses 1 through 11. Now when it comes to the setting, we need to keep in mind that uh, Jesus came to teach. He came to instruct as well as he came to save. In John 3, Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, came to Jesus and said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. For no one can do these things, these signs that you do, unless God is with him. Jesus rose people from the dead. Jesus rose himself from the dead. Jesus walked on water. Jesus turned water into wine. Well, he did those things to display the power of God, to verify his message. If Jesus had said, I'm the son of God, and he had died on the cross and never rose again, well, his claim would be false, but his claim was true because he did those things. In the same way, Jesus took his 11 disciples. We know that the 12th was Judas, and he, you know, betrayed him and died. He took those 11 disciples, and he taught them, and he showed them things. And when he ascended in Acts 1, he said that, in, that the Holy Spirit would come. And the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2 and indwelled them, and those disciples that became the apostles, they began to also do some of the miraculous things that Jesus did. Now why? To verify the message. 
the miracles just didn't stop with Jesus. They continued so that when they went to a new place and they told them about God and they're like, well, why do you get to speak for God? But then they would heal someone and they're like, whoa, this dude must speak for God. And unfortunately, the church today still thinks those things are normative. They, they still think that we have apostles and they have uh, spiritual healing ministries and stuff like that. And there's a lot of, a lot of fake stuff going on with those things. Uh, the gift of tongues and so forth, which is not exercised. All right, in Acts that's happening to verify the message of the hand-picked apostles of Jesus. Alan Carnes writes, indisputably in the New Testament, the supernatural gifts of the Spirit were intended as special confirmations of God's revelation, then in the process of being given. You see that in Hebrews 2, and this will help you as you have friends and people that maybe not have studied this as much, and they still think that the sign gifts are happening uh, speaking in tongues, miracles, healings, those types of things. It says in Hebrews 2, For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So Hebrews is saying, look, this is what happened. God inspires men. So you have Peter writing. You have Luke writing here. You have Paul writing scripture. And their ministry is confirmed or affirmed by the miracles and the things that are happening. But that was not meant to continue on through the church once the canon of Scripture was completed. So here we have in Acts 3, we have God using Peter, doing something miraculous to get everyone's attention and to validify his message. Acts 3, verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the ninth hour, the hour of prayer. And a man who had been lame from his mother's womb. Now why? Why did God have this man here at this time? And why do we clarify that this man had been lame from birth? Conveniently, it, it couldn't be a charade. Okay? It couldn't be something fake. It couldn't be a plant. It couldn't be some guy that got hurt last week. And he's lying in wait and, oh, you healed me. And unfortunately, a lot of the, the healing and, and, and those things that are going on are, are fake things like that. It says, a man who had been lame from his mother's womb was being carried along, whom they used to set down every day at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, in order to beg alms of those who were entering the temple. This man was well known. He was there all the time. He was carried by others. He was begging. He was crippled. And when Peter and John, uh, sorry, when he saw Peter and John about to go to the temple, he began asking to receive alms. But Peter, along with John, fixed his gaze on him and said, look at us. And he began to give them his attention, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I do not possess silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, walk. Peter was very clear the one that he spoke for was not himself. 
He spoke for the Christ, which is the Messiah, the anointed one. He spoke for Jesus, the one that was from Nazareth. Walk. And seizing him by the right hand, he raised him up, and immediately his feet and his ankles were strengthened. A miracle took place. And we read this and we go, oh, yeah, 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 okay, okay. This, it's a miracle. There are thousands of people that are desperate for healing in our world today, physical healing. Here's a man, his whole life was dependent upon other people dragging him around so that he could beg for his livelihood. And in an instant, he's healed. And with a leap, he stood upright and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Notice he did not praise Peter. He praised God. This man knew who Peter was. He knew who John was. He knew that they were followers of Jesus. And he's praising God. Look at the reaction. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they were taking note of him as being the one who used to sit at the beautiful gate of the temple to beg alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement in what had happened to him. And while he was clinging to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them at the so-called portico of Solomon, full of amazement. It worked. It worked. In God's sovereign plan, this man was lame from birth, placed at the temple, Healed by Peter, then brought in front of everyone to draw a crowd. And remember the context. Acts 1, Jesus ascended. He said the Holy Spirit's coming. Acts 2, the Holy Spirit came and thousands became followers of Jesus. Here we are, very early in their ministry. Acts 3, Peter heals this man and every single person is full of amazement. Full of amazement. That's the setting. And Peter takes this opportunity to preach to the people. He didn't just leave it at that. He didn't just say, yeah, I'm pretty cool. It's awesome that Jesus lets me do these things. He knew that he was there to preach the truth. And so we see his sermon in verses 12 through 16. In verse 12, it says, but when Peter saw this, he replied to the people, Men of Israel, why are you amazed at this? Or why do you gaze at us as if by our own power or piety we made him walk? Now, a miracle is a miracle, people. This is amazing. This is something to be in awe of. This is something to go, wow. But hadn't these people for several years seen Jesus do even more than this? And Peter is deflecting to say, look, it's not about me, it's about God, it's about Jesus. You should not be amazed at this, you should be amazed at Jesus. Peter quickly then turns the conversation to Christ. He turns this conversation to Christ. And remember, this is the same Peter that not too long ago denied Jesus three times. Why? Because he was afraid that he was going to be arrested as well. He was afraid that he was going to be killed. 
And he didn't want that to happen. So even though Jesus was on the other side of the courtyard, when they said, aren't you his follower? He said, I don't know that man. And obviously it broke Jesus' heart. Peter repented. Jesus restores him. But why is Peter different now? What did he receive in Acts 2? Receive the Holy, Holy Spirit. And the Lord has not given us a spirit of timidity, right? But of power and of courage. And so now he's going to courageously stand up in the temple. And he's going to call them out. And he's going to share the gospel with them in this sermon. His first point that he covers is God. It's God. Look at verse 13. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus. Let's put the focus where the focus needs to go. You're all pumped about this miracle. I'm pumped about God. And this is the same God as the Old Testament. And we, we walked through the patriarchs. We talked about Abraham and Isaac. And we didn't quite get to Jacob. But this is the God of our fathers. He has glorified his servant, Jesus. And we're keeping in mind, why did he start with God? Well, because there are four crucial components to sharing the gospel. Hopefully, you've gotten those by now through Bible quizzing. You want to talk about God. You want to talk about man. You want to talk about Jesus. And you want to call them to repent and believe. Describe God. So his starting point is, look guys, the God of the Old Testament. The God of our patriarchs. That's who I'm going to start with. So I'm going to start with. So we're all on the same page. This isn't a God of your own choosing. This is Yahweh, the one true God. And then you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Uh, Peter, did you make a mistake here? You're supposed to go to man next. It's all right. He's going to cover the four components. He's just going to do it a little bit different. He's going to talk about Jesus, right? He's going to talk about Jesus. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant, Jesus. And Jesus had just ascended in Acts 1 and said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. That's why they were there. That's why he picked these guys. That's why he taught these guys. They're to be Jesus' witnesses. And here he is witnessing about Jesus. And he's going to describe the deliverer. He's going to first of all call Jesus the servant of God. The servant of God. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers has glorified his servant, Jesus. And this draws back all sorts of connections to the suffering servant from Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53. This is the suffering servant that was to be pierced for our transgressions, who was to be crushed for our iniquities. He's going to continue on in verse 13. It says, the one whom you delivered. And disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. So he's not holding anything back here. We'll get to the man aspect. But he is the servant of God. He is holy. He is righteous. Wait, 
Peter, this guy was crucified as a criminal. Really? He's holy? He's righteous? Well, the servant was to be crucified even though he was blameless. And he's reminding them of Jesus' status. Jesus is holy and righteous. If you want to be with God, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. But then he calls him in verse 15, the prince of life. Let's look at verse 14 again. But you disown the holy and righteous one. And ask for a murderer to be granted to you. But put to death the prince of life. Prince, author, originator. The one whom God raised from the dead. A fact to which we are witnesses. The fact to which we are witnesses. And we know from 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus didn't just appear to the 11 apostles. He appeared to hundreds of people at the same time. He appeared to a number of people proving that he was the way, the truth, and the life. They tried to kill him and he came back. Why? Because he is the author, the originator. He is the prince of life. And don't you want life? I mean, why can this crippled man be healed? Because Jesus is the prince of life. How can I be saved from my unrighteousness? I go to the prince of life who has righteous and who is righteous. He calls him in verse 18, he calls him the Christ. But the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, his Christ was suffered, he has thus fulfilled. Skip down to verse 20. And that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from the ancient time. Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. So we know from Genesis 3.15, a promised one would come through Abraham. In Genesis 12, the promised one would come through Abraham. And then from Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. And then you have the people, the nation of Israel. And Moses, as the leader of Israel, said, a prophet will come. And he is the one to save you. And then we find out it's supposed to come through the line of Judah. And then it whittles down and down and down and down. The descendant of David. And this is who it is. This is the special one. This is the anointed. This is the Christ. There's no disputing or arguing. And when he came, the people that were supposed to know him well did what? Rejected him. Rejected him. You sit here just about every Sunday and every Wednesday, and we talk about the Christ, we talk about the Savior, and some of you are still rejecting him. These people of Israel had rejected him. So Peter is now standing before them, performing a miracle to remind them that he is the Christ, that he is the chosen one, And he calls him, we saw a couple of times where he calls him the Nazarene, or he calls him by his name, Jesus. Well, that's to remind them that he's not just the Son of God, but he is also fully man. Verified that he is a man, that he grew up before them and he grew up amongst them. 
You cannot have salvation without a perfect sacrifice. You cannot have a perfect sacrifice without God. You can't have a sacrifice without man because God can't die. So you have the God-man who is the deliverer. He moves on to his next point. And his next point would be man. His next point would be man. But you disowned the holy and righteous one. He didn't pull any punches, did he? As a part of being Jesus' witnesses, he's going to call them out and remind them, you did this. Why did you do this? Well, because they loved what? Their sin. They didn't love the light. They loved the darkness. Jesus reminded them of how imperfect they were. Greed and jealousy and, and, and deceit. Those are the things that they loved. And if you're sitting here today and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, why is that? Because, is it because he's not real? Is it because you haven't been told? It's because you love your sin. You don't want Jesus as Lord of your life. You think you're the Lord of your life. And it's easy to look at the Jews and say, tis, 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 you crucified the Savior. But in the hardness of our heart, we would have been right there alongside them yelling, crucify him, crucify him. But you disowned the holy and righteous one. And you asked for a murderer to be granted. Well, what do we mean by that? Well, remember, they asked for Barabbas to be released, right? They asked for Barabbas. You rejected the righteous one. And you unleash the unrighteous one. Pilate, trying to kind of get out of the sticky wicket he was in, brought Barabbas before them and brought Jesus before them and said, what do you want me to do? Because he could release one prisoner. And they all asked for Barabbas, who was a murderer and a thief. It, does that not describe today's culture? Let's crucify the righteous person. And the sinner, the gross pagan, let's give them a free pass. And that's exactly what they did. Left to ourselves, that's what we do. That's how dark our heart is. That's how terrible our decision making is. If you ever try to get inside the mind of the wicked and figure out what they do and how they do it, their mind and their heart have been corrupted and have been deceived. And then in verse 15, he says, you put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. We, we were there. We saw it. We saw you doing this. All Jesus wanted to do was to love you. All he wanted to do was to save you. He was kind and he was gracious and he was true and he was powerful. You put him to death. You put him to death. And then he brings a third charge against them. You are oblivious to the obvious. Verse 17, and now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance just as your rulers did also. Just as your rulers did also. What do we mean oblivious to the obvious? 
1 Corinthians 2.8 says, The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But God knew what we would do. You think of that? God sent the way of escape, and we said, no thanks. God sent the perfect righteous one, and we said, kill him. Our wisdom is not God's wisdom, but God knew that. And that's why Jesus, on the cross, to this same crowd, most likely, that Peter is speaking to right now. They were mocking Jesus while he was on the cross. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And here we're going to have a picture of people receiving that forgiveness that Jesus had prayed for not too long ago. His his fourth point is he's going to call them to repent and believe. He's going to call them to repent and believe. And I I know that it's not nice and neat and we're kind of jumping around a little bit, but you see these crucial components And I'd like for you to take these when you share with other people. And it doesn't have to be cookie cutter. You don't have to say, okay, um, hold on. God, creator and owner. Uh, Wait, there's a scripture that goes with it. All right, You, you can. That's the content that you want. But you can be more conversational. And those things can kind of be drawn out. But you want to make sure you're sharing those things. In the repenting and believing, we see this in verse 19. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Now, what word is missing in verse 19? What word is missing? When you share, what's the word you always say? Believe. He doesn't doesn't, doesn't say believe. The word repent here is to recognize your sin and turn from it. And in doing so, you're placing your faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot repent without faith. You cannot have faith without repentance. And that's another thing. So we've addressed the charismatic movement, the signs, the gifts, the wonders all right, we're talking about the birth and growth of the church, how this is a special time frame that God is using these miracles to solidify and verify this ministry. But here we're talking about the, the lordship versus non-lordship. There are many that will say, oh, look, 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 you, just ask Jesus into your heart. Say a prayer, walk an aisle, get baptized, and then you're good to go. Now, there doesn't need to be any fruit in your life. Um, they, would, they would say that uh, a Christian that's walking with the Lord is kind of like an uber, super special Christian. No, he says, this is who you are. You are the rotten rat that crucified the Prince of Life. And you can't be that anymore. You need to turn from that sin and place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's going to happen here? If you repent, he's going to wipe away those sins and if you're listening to the sermon you bam bam gut oh i was there man i was there i i was guilty i was the one calling for barabbas i was the one 
cheering Jesus on when he's being nailed to a cross. I mean, how gross is that anyways? To take satisfaction and joy in the misery and the suffering of someone else? Yeah, that, uh, that was me. But now I've heard about this whole resurrection thing. Ooh. And you're telling me that if I, I, I don't have to work for this, I turn and believe, and I, I get my sins wiped out, sign me up. Sign me up. You see, Peter's, James Montgomery Boyce says, Peter's sermon contains an appeal. This is because in the final analysis, Peter was not interested in merely condemning his hearers. On the contrary, he wanted them to repent of their sin and believe on Jesus. And I think sometimes when we share the gospel, we bring the hammer down, which is good. But we forget about the grace. We, we forget about the forgiveness. It's an important element. Sometimes we kind of wash over the, you know, the sin. We don't address the sin. But then other times we don't talk about justification. We don't talk about the positive things of repentance. So Peter's going to walk through the, re the rewards of it. Uh, we looked at it. Forgiveness. Verse 19. Refreshment. Look, refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The, the sinner is dead in their sins, and they have been fighting God their whole life. Fighting God their whole life. They've been running after sin. And it's gotten them nothing. And they're exhausted. And they're beaten. And they're bitter. And if they would come to Jesus, are, are you discontent with your life? Well, yeah. Is life tough? Absolutely. People unfair to you? Oh yeah, you know they're unfair to me. Is this world unkind? Absolutely. Is it unjust? Oh yeah, it's unjust. Preach it, brother. Well, the only satisfaction is through God who created you. It's not in a government. It's not in a social program. It's not in a movement. It's through Jesus Christ you receive refreshment. You get the reward of Jesus, verse 20, and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you. Did you catch that? Appointed for you. He came to die for you. Whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Jesus is now in heaven and he's waiting for go time. And he's going to come back. You get Jesus. You get to be one of his children. You get to rule and reign with him forever. And you get deliverance. Moses said, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successor onward also announce these days. You get deliverance. Now, are any of these bad? You know, you ever got that birthday present and you're like, does this person even know me? You get that Christmas gift and you're like, I think this was supposed to go to my sibling, not to me. But you accept it with a happy heart graciously, right? All those things are awesome. Can you think of one thing better than any of this? Can you? Can you think of a lifestyle that's better than this? 
Can you think of a, a material thing that's better than this? You can't. So unbeliever, you're sitting here looking at this, and there's nothing that you can do that's better than this. So come to the cross. Come to Jesus. And you get this. Believer, you have this. Rejoice. There's no, there's no time for, for worry, for fear, for, for depression. You have this. Rejoice because you've repented. He's given this. And in verses 25 through 26, he pours on the blessing. It is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your father, saying to Abraham, And in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first, God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. People of Israel that are here at this temple, God has had a special relationship with you. You are the descendants of Abraham and you're supposed to turn first so that you can then go be my witnesses throughout the world telling people about Jesus. Lastly, we're going to look at the spectators. We have the setting, we have the sermon, we have the spectators. What's going to happen from this lesson? Well, one product of this is you have the proud people. The proud people. And did you catch, I love what Andrew was reading in the, the scripture reading. Don't turn to the proud. Don't turn to the wise of this world. Instead, turn to your Savior. Verse one, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to them. The hoity-toity, the spiritual ones. Hey, they're going to come up, they're going to intervene. Being greatly disturbed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The world does not want the preaching of the word. That's why there's so many churches that are simply there to tickle your ear and to make you feel better about yourself. The world wants the word silenced. And the religious leaders are leading the charge. They laid hands on them and put them in jail until the next day, for it was already evening. That's their solution. Hey, we can take care of this. We're going to arrest them. And if you want to follow him, that's what's going to happen to you too. Proud people. How sad is that? The priests, the Sadducees, the temple guards should have been the first people tearing their robes in repentance. That was us. We did it. We conspired against Jesus. We are guilty. We are guilty. Then you also have the penitent people. The broken hearted. Those that are poor in spirit. Verse 4. But many of those who had heard the message. Believed. Many of them heard. It worked. The preaching of the gospel produced repentance. God got their attention with this miracle. And Peter faithfully taught the four crucial components of the gospel. 
And while some hardened their heart and doubled down on their sin, thousands placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when it says this, when it says, and the men came to be about 5,000, okay, we don't know if it's 5,000 people came to know the Lord. Or just, if most likely, is it just 5,000 men? It, it could be even more than that. Or if this is like the total number in Jerusalem at that time. Because we already have the preaching from Acts 2 where a lot came to know the Lord. But the thing is, they're not alone anymore. There's thousands of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ because of everything that's been going on. And I, I want to pause. And as we conclude, I want you to think about you. And you're like, oh, that's good. I'm, I'm good about thinking about me. I can do that. Do you have a clear understanding of God's demonstrated power? And what I mean by that is, you're not going to see a miracle when you go to church today. When you think of miracles, who did them in the Bible? Like Moses did miracles through the power of God. Elijah, Elisha, very few people did the miracles. And when they did the miracles, it was to point to God's word. It was to point to God. So in today's age, with the sign gifts, the apostles and a few others did those miraculous things to point to the Bible, to point to Christ. Well, now we have the recorded truth of what happened, and so we don't have those miraculous sign gifts. Do you have a clear understanding of Peter's points? You have no idea how many ministry applications where the first question is, what is the gospel? And the people filling it out do not have the proper understanding of those components. Sometimes it's an education thing. You know, when you're writing out, it's a little bit. But sometimes it's a hard-heartedness and people just are, are faking it to make it. But that, those terminology that we use, repentance, that should be in a gospel presentation. Faith, those are things that are crucial, those points that are there. Utilize those to share the gospel with others. Do you have a clear understanding of your own sinfulness? Do you see yourself in the sinners of this chapter? Our sin put Christ on the cross. My lying, my anger, my deceptions, my selfishness, that is what Christ died for. If you are an unbeliever, you are still dead in your sins. And then lastly, have you experienced the words of re repentance? There's nothing better than knowing that your sins have been wiped away. There's nothing better than knowing that when I die, I go to be with my Savior. There's nothing better. There's nothing better knowing that I can have peace and patience and joy and love and self-control. 
because of the Holy Spirit that resides within me. I want you to consider, unbeliever, that you will go to a place of perpetual torment and you will suffer in hell for eternity. You don't want to go there. But on the flip side, unbeliever, I want you to look at how awesome it is to be a Christian. I'm not talking about you're going to get money in your bank account and you're going to get fancy cars and everything's going to go your way. I'm talking about these rewards of repentance. And then for the believer, I want you to consider those rewards of repentance and when you don't get what you want and when you feel like you're bored or when you're starting to fear or you're starting to worry, I want you to remember how good God has been, how good he's currently being to you, and how good he will be to you for eternity and respond accordingly. Let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, it truly is a gift to be able to open up your word and read your truth. We thank you that Peter was faithful to courageously proclaim your truth. And I pray that we we would do the same thing in the same way all these years later. We love you, Father. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.